Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation is a tax-exempt 501c3 nonprofit private foundation. Your donations, sponsoring, and funding allows us to create content that raises awareness of African-American traditional music, African-American folklore, and the Black experience. Check the link in the description box to donate. If you wish to sponsor podcasts, documentary series, or underwrite ads in our newspaper, The African American Folklorist, contact the email address in the description box. Southern trees Barren strange fruit Blood on the leaves
What's happening? What's happening? What's happening, blues people? You're tuned into another episode of Jack Dapper Blues, the African American folklorist. I know it's a little weird to start the program with strange fruits for those of you who are not in the know, but that is the epitome of the blues. And that is the epitome of the blues people. And on this episode, I speak to a significant contributor to the black story and experience who's pinned as well as drawn many comic books, but I call them history books, of African-American traditional experiences in the black narrative. Let's give a warm welcome to Brother Joel Christian Brooks. What's happening, brother? Not a lot. How you doing? Man, I'm 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 uh, considering the circumstances, I'm still doing fairly well. My family and I, we're we're faithful people. How about yourself? Pretty good. I live in um I live in the middle of the New Hampshire and um, I always call it white condom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so it's um, I don't have to see my neighbors if I don't want to. So I'm back in the woods. I've been making one trip out every week and um, been pretty good so far. Well, you're, you're, you're staying consistent to your story as a true country man. Absolutely. And, and, and and I applaud that uh, my family and I are looking to head back to the country. You know, there's nothing like having space and being able to walk in the grass. You know, uh, city life is, 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 is good, and I'm not knocking it, but I mean, you know, there, there comes a time you need space and quiet <laughs> and nature. Exactly. So let's get into your story, man. Uh, considering what you just said, that's a great way to start this because you do have country roots. Yeah, I'm from. Um, I'm, I'm originally from Virginia. I grew up in um, southwestern Virginia. Um, the place I grew up in is a little town called Rocky Mount. They call it the moonshine capital of the world. And um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Rocky Mount is an interesting place. And um, I ended up moving to New England when I went to grad school, and I've been here almost. I mean, it's long, I mean, it's not quite twenty years, but it's getting close. We've been up here almost twenty years. So wow. Um, yeah. Well, considering it's the capital of moonshine, that means you are of the blues people. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Franklin County, Virginia is the cap. It's a moonshine capital. Actually, you can buy a T-shirt when you're down there that basically, that have signs that say moonshine capital of the world. And it's a funny story. When I was in grad school at BU, Boston University, there was a, um, there was this NPR article on, they were like listening to NPR and they were talking about ATF agents and moonshine and they started explaining stuff and they were in Southwestern Virginia where I was from and he started explaining something. I'm like, I know exactly where he is right now. Wow. <laughs> well, let me ask you, with, with, with the, the part of Virginia you come from, would that be considered the Appalachian? Yeah, we're at the foot, we're at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. So, um, 
yeah, Appalachia, it's, it's the Appalachian Mountains. Like, we're right there at the foothills. So, Blue Ridge Mountains is next to the Appalachian. So, we're on the Appalachian Trail. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's like um, a lot of, you know, that. You, I always tell people, you know, like, um, you ever see the movie, Oh Brother, Where I Thou? Absolutely. And you know, they're singing in the chain gang. They're in the chain gang and they're singing. Yes. Uh, that's, how, that's the kind of singing that, that happened in the church that I grew up in. You know, I grew up in a primitive Baptist church, and I always tell people, my mom hates it when I say it, but it's like a step up from snake handling. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, I kind of have a problem with that too because I grew up and still go to a church like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't mean it in a negative way. I just mean like in a traditional sense. No, like, I understand. Uh, you know, I, I had to poke fun at you because uh, a friend of mine, Rick, he's an older Southern white gentleman. We 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 get on people who use the term primitive, but we, but I do understand what you mean. I, I just think based on a lot of the early studies of quote-unquote African-American history and traditions from ethnographers, folklorists, and things, they use that term, and it, it, it gives people the wrong idea. I know how you meant it, but I, I, I think sometimes it gives people a, a idea of un, underdeveloped um, and things of that nature. That's, that's why. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard it called anything other than primitive Baptist. Um, but it was mostly, you know, primitive. I think it just meant that we didn't use electric music, you know, people sang all day, you know, people preached all day. Um, communion for me when I was growing up was like a basement filled with the best food in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like, it was that kind of thing. And when you were kids, we didn't have to, and, and we only had church every third Sunday cause it was on a traveling circuit that, um, I believe was still connected to the enslavement days mm. where you know, were going around like so you would go to different counties at different times and so our church was every third Sunday but other churches would be every second Sunday and every first Sunday and all these preachers came along with them so and most of the people that I went to church with were family or extended family so right um, so you you were really living the traditional uh, blues people life Exactly. Right. Absolutely. So we we're saying primitive in 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 the form of early beginnings. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. That's what I like because you know, and, and I'm really happy that you shared that piece of your history because one of the major functions of this program and my entire platform is to reconnect our people and the quote-unquote generations because we're not that there's not that big of a gap with a lot of these things like my grandfather the last grandparent that was living he died a, a year or two ago uh, 96 or 97 but the, the reason why I bring him up he grew up on a plantation this stuff is not that far away from it's not that far removed from us so then for you in my age group to share that story it kind of confirms how much in close proximity these things are. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and that's another thing that I think is really interesting just about the history of, uh, of how America has evolved. And people look at these things as being, you know, so like so far back, but my grandmother, um, who's still alive, she's 85 this year, 86 this year. You know, she has, she has, you know, not firsthand knowledge, but secondhand knowledge of what it was like for enslaved Africans. You know, my mother, who was in her 70s, 
Um, this is my, my, my father's mother who's still alive and my mother's mother who was, um, she was, uh, she would have been a hundred and she'd have been 113, 114 this year. She had lived. Wow. She, um, 1902. So that was a grandmother that I grew up with whose her, her mother and father were born on, they were born enslaved. They were born on plantation. Mm. And so got so you have like we we that that knowledge is still there that that's first and you know that secondhand knowledge is still out there in the world that I don't think people realize just how close we are to knowing to having you know information from people who were who were like who who knew who grew up with an uncle or an aunt or you know even a father that was an enslaved African so I think that's a really interesting um you know that's a really interesting you know, sort of connection to make about the idea of how history has evolved and, you know, where we are today versus where we, where we used to be. But, you right. know, to hear, you know, mom tell it, you know, and I think that's like, actually, I think that's enough just as a political aside, that's a, that's a disconnect between the older and the younger generation of African-Americans is that younger generation haven't grown up with the kind of system that, with the kind of racism that was so explicit, right. um, you know, about 30, 40 years ago. Right. Um, so you only see that the sort of hidden microaggression, sort of like implicit racism that older, um, older African-Americans had learned to deal with that. Like that was fine. Like you want to, you want to say some nasty stuff to me in your breath, but you're not going to like, you're not going to say it out loud. I'm okay with that. I can, I can push through that. I think that's a disconnect that I don't think people are talking about how older generations of African-Americans have learned to deal with all of the systematic racism, but younger generations don't have the explicit gener explicit racism. Right. So they only have the implied racism to have to deal with. But that's a whole nother thing that we can talk about. No, you're point. absolutely right. And uh, we, we will, if we don't get back to it on this, I'm going to get you back on the show because you're a thousand percent correct. We're in this, we're, we're close in proximity and age and based on your experience in 1983 I was like you know I you know I gravitated to based on the 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 strange fruits book that I by the way good people you know Joel and I just having a conversation like you you guys aren't here I met Joel <laughs> at the Schomburg Black Comic Book Festival Schomburg in Harlem and he had a, a couple of books there. One of them I purchased, which was Strange Fruit, uh, Black History. It I would like to liken it, because I, I really don't like comparing them with anything, but just to give you guys an understanding, it is a comic book version of the slave narrative um, to a degree. And when I say comic book, I don't mean Marvel or DC, right? And that, that's the first thing. We're going to jump around here a bit because I know I, I, cut, I completely stopped my other thought, but I want to get on this first. Reading this, because usually my wife and I uh, read over books and comics uh, before we read it with the children to see if we're going to have what we have to explain, <laughs> you know, and um, this book, we love it. First and foremost, because your approach to the verbiage, besides the history and the imagery, imagery, excuse me, but the verbiage doesn't dumb down. It's not dumbed down. It, it actually, um, I would say, 
call to a raise of level of vocabulary for black folk. And I really appreciate that. My wife does as well. You know, it introduces young readers to vocabulary that they possibly would not have uh, come across in some cases because we know one of the reasons why our children and, and a lot in other generations, the last couple of generations had problems with SATs because a lot of words and vocabulary on those tests aren't used every day, whether it's in their household or in their school. So I have to ask you, was that a conscious decision? I don't know if it was, I wouldn't say, I don't know if I'd say it was a conscious decision other than the fact that I think when I went about the process of making stories in Strange Fruit, I initially, I wasn't making them thinking of kids. I was just thinking of people, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll talk about how um, interesting people, how these stories were really interesting. Um, and and I was thinking, a lot of ways I was thinking like, um, hipsters will buy, you know, a, you know, $10 avocado on toast, right? <laughs> they'll, they'll buy, you know, interesting comics too about black history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a publisher, when I, when, when I was approached by a publisher to have these published, they were, they said to me, these would be really good for kids. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's only a few things, like really minuscule things that you have to change in order to make this a, a kid-friendly book. Mm. And so, and the things that we changed were, like there are things that, even if I gave you a copy of the, the old versions of these stories, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them. Like it would be something that's so minuscule that for the education market, you wouldn't know. So I was just thinking about ways in which to tell a story. And so I think one of the things that I don't really do anymore, but I used to do, um, this I think what you're talking about is that I would use um, the definition of a word in a place in the story. So if there was in a story that I would say something like disheartened, right? I might actually just put the definition of disheartened in that par- in that panel, mostly because I was like, I was struggling as a writer at that point. And so I was trying to figure out ways to connect the words and the pictures. And I don't typically do that anymore. It's actually a really good device that I should go back to at some point. Um, but um, I just like, I just sort of like started adding those things in there. And so that became a way for me to put things in there. And I, and when you look at it in a, in a macro level, which is what my editors did, they were like, these are re- this is a really good way for kids to actually learn this stuff as well. So um, I never thought about dumbing the story down because, I like to make stories um, other than my memoir fights, which has just came out in January. Exactly. I like to make stories more universal, whereas fights is what is race. It's skewed way older because of, you know, because of who I am and you know, how I grew up and what I ended up surviving. But um, I think that I don't necessarily think that I, I thought about it in that sense. I was just like trying to make good stuff that was universal. Does that make sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. A good example I like to use to people because this is a popular movie, uh, Saturday Night Fever. And I, I just remember a, a few years back, we had a house full of people and my wife and I just sat in the living room and analyzed this movie for two hours. And what I come to realize is that could have been a black family in Harlem. That could have been a, a Latin family in Nevada. It didn't, it was just a universal story. The culture was, was kind of, um, a bonus, but that was just a universal story. So I, I, I share that to say, I, I get 
exactly what you're saying. You was making something identifiable to everyone. But you did a great job, especially for us because we're homeschool parents. So we, we just thought that was just a remarkable thing. Now, you have... You already mentioned you, your steps ahead of me. I was going to mention fight, uh, fights, one boy's triumph. You have um, fast enough. You have the um, tales of the talented tenth. So you have some 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 strong books under your belt. I, I want to start with fights for two reasons. One is the most recent. Well, three reasons. It's the most recent. It is your story, literally, and. Like a lot of us in your age, in our age, great, our age range, you came up in the crack era. So there was a lot, there was a big uh, dynamic and, and, and societal shift in our communities at this time. So you, 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 I didn't have an opportunity to read this entire book, but based on what I know of your story and some of the book, you have some, I don't want to say tales, but interesting stories that you overcame to get to this point in your life. Please talk to us about that. Yeah, I think um, fights is about, I think I, I tell people that fights is my love letter to kids who grew up like me. It's about how I wanted to, you know, when I first started drawing comics, I originally started because I wanted to tell my own story. Okay. Uh, and, and I ended up getting sidetracked. I don't know if I'd say sidetracked, but I ended up telling the story of, you know, you know, disaffected African-American um, people or stories that had been hidden throughout history. So um, while learning to, to tell their story, I found a voice for my own story. Mm. And uh, and so when I decided to go back to fight, you know, I thought to myself, like, what's the purpose of, of doing a story like this? Why, why don't like, why is my story important to tell? Because everybody believes they're the, the star of their own TV show, right? <laughs> um, this is why people can't can't take the fact that bad things happen to them because like nothing ever bad happens to the main character right right so, so i was in you know i was thinking so what's the purpose of this this can't be cathartic i've been through therapy for years and you know so i'm i'm good with who i am as a person so what's the purpose of this and it was about it was you know i, I wrote fight because ultimately all of my work is about building empathy. And when I say empathy, it's not, and this is a, this is a thing that I, this is like people who are really religious get asking me about saying this because I don't believe that the golden rule is enough. Okay. I believe that we have to be, you can't treat people like you want to be treated. You have to treat people how they want to be treated, mm. which means it's a research, right? You got to do a little bit more, right? So I'll give you an example. You come over to my house. Let's just say that I like for breakfast, you know, I, I like I like sardines and um, and broccoli for breakfast, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the best breakfast in the world. And you get up in the morning, and I'm like, I'm making the best breakfast in the world. I'm making sardines and broccoli because that's what I love. And I give it to you, and you're like, no, <laughs> I want pancakes. Right, right, right. So in order for me to, to, to be empathetic towards you, it's not just treating you like I want to be treated. It's treating you, it's learning who you are, understanding who you are, and treating you like you want to be treated. Mm. And that takes up, that, that's another level out, right? Right. And so what I want was I wanted to create a story about kids, like for people to see what it was like to be a kid like I was. To be a kid who was dealing with trauma, dealing with violence, dealing with sexual abuse, dealing with emotional abuse. And then how you have to react to that kid because people don't see what's what, people don't know why that kid gets up in the morning and comes to school and the day hasn't even started yet and he's already fighting and he's beating up that girl at lunch at, at breakfast. You know what I mean? I that kid's probably tough than most people go through 
in an entire year right before he came to school that morning. And so without knowing that, we have a we have a this idea of just looking at kids and thinking, oh, they're throwaway kids or they're sociopaths or psychopaths, and it happens tremendously to black and brown kids. Mm-hmm. They look at them and go, oh, it's going to be a little thug, as opposed to like looking at them and going, you know what? These might be, there might be something underlying here. And if I take the, if I go the extra mile to learn what that person wants for breakfast, I can make them a better breakfast, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was my purpose behind making fights was for kids to see that there are choices that you can make. Limited choices because you're a kid and you don't have as much choices, but you can find some things you can control. And if you control those things, you can expand how much you can control in your life. And for adults who are looking at this, you maybe you weren't a kid like this. Maybe you maybe you did not ever have guns pulled on you. Maybe none of this none of this stuff has ever happened to you. But at the same time, you can see what it's like for a kid to have done that and have some empathy for that kid moving forward, so that you can treat them the way that they need to be treated, not the way you want to be treated when if you were that kid. Does that make sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. I do want to touch on something. You said as you went into your answer, you said this is not therapy, right? When you were doing this book. And it's, it's ironic that you make that statement considering majority of the people take up art, whether it's singing, drawing, or writing as a self-medication. So how, how were you able to, one, uh, make that differentiation, and two, keep that separate in your writing? Um, there's a quote by Mary Oliver, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet who died in the last five years, I think. Um, and she says that emotion doesn't create style. Style creates emotion. Mm. And what that means is that you don't make angry things when you're angry, right? Mm. You don't make sad you're sad. You actually make those things when you step back and you're objective about the process and you look at see how to push and pull using those elements, whether if it's music, it's like, you know, the, the formal understanding and formal theory of music. If it's art, it's about how the formal elements and principles of organization of art come into play. With comics, it's about how visual language and formal elements and storytelling and writing all come together. So it's about having to step back at those things and look at these things and go, you know what, this is a really dope memory. But it doesn't, it actually doesn't fit in what I'm trying to do because it's not hitting the way I want it to hit. And so it's actually being really objective about that. And so that's, for the most part, how I was dealing with, how I dealt with the, the idea of like, this isn't cathartic because that was like going through therapy is a different thing. It's really self-reflective. It's looking at the good, bad, and the ugly. And when I sit down in front of my drawing tablet and I start to draw, I don't, I don't want, I, I want to be, I want to be thinking about how to make people feel a certain way when I'm doing it. I don't want to be thinking about how I'm feeling. Mm. Um, and I want to separate those things. I want to separate those things out. I mean, I want to be, I want to be reflective. You know, I want to be self-reflective. You want to know yourself and like how I would respond in that situation. But I don't want to be feeling that stuff when I'm going through. I mean, I drew in fights. I'm drawing about sexual abuse. I'm, I, I don't, I don't relive that every time I pick up the pen and start drawing a situation where I'm actually thinking about that. It was more thinking back on it and going, how did that feel for me? How to best represent that as a, as a, an adult now looking back on it, as opposed to looking at it and going, 
this is what I need to, you know, this is, this is, I'm angry now because I'm, I'm sad or I'm angry or I'm feeling it now. This is how I should make it. Does that make sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And with that, I want to go into a little bit of, um, I believe it was the preface of, of Strange Fruits where you shared that you were at a, a exhibit of your paintings and, and a friend of yours gave you a message that ultimately, um, I don't know, you said brought it full circle. So I'll use your words. Do you want to share that story? Yeah. So I would, you know, I went to college because I wanted to draw comics. And then, um, you know, I got, there was no programs for drawing comics where I grew up. So I ended up going into a graphic design program and with my, with an eye toward graduating and going to a place where I could study illustration. And I ended up doing, um, taking a painting class and I fell in love with painting and painters. And I was like, this is it. Like, this is my way to tell those stories. This is, you know, highbrow. I could be the next best. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to world with my paintings. Right. Mm-hmm. So I spent all the painting and when I was doing this, I got, um, there was this, um, there was a, um, lynching, a famous lynching that happened in Roanoke, Virginia, the city that I eventually moved to. And, um, it was really bad. Um, I read some articles about it in the newspaper and I read some like historical articles and I'm like, this is a really interesting thing. I'm going to, I'm going to do some paintings based on these lynchings. Um, and so, I did, um, I did all this research for it and then I fell out of, I just like, at some point I just stopped. I couldn't look at these lynching images anymore. So then I went to, um, then I got up, then I went to grad school and I came back and after living in Boston for a couple of years, one of the things that actually, I always say this and it's, it's still funny and it's like, it's still a thing that I don't think people realize is that when I, when I went above the Mason Dixon line, I realized that I discovered racism above the Mason-Dixon line. I don't think people realize that the racism exists above the Mason-Dixon line as it does below. <laughs> so I, so I go about, you know, I get to Boston and I find this out and I come back and I start thinking about those lynchings paintings. It's like a metaphor for how far we have come, but how far we still need to go. Right. So I did a whole series of paintings based on it. And one of them was a self-portrait with a noose around my neck. And it was called Strange Fruit Harvested. He cut the rope. And, and I was trying to say, I was trying to talk about this rope as being this metaphor for like this, like where we have come as black people, right? Like mm-hmm. we have gone a long, long way, but still not completely finished, right? Mm-hmm. And a whole bunch of these paintings, and I was really into Dutch for Flemish masters at the time. So I did this big painting that was like a descent painting. Um, descent paintings are typically paintings of pulling Christ off the cross. Mm-hmm. Um I did one of like the scene of these this people pulling this man off of, uh, pulling him off from being lynched. He was like taking him down. And, um, and my friend, a really good friend of mine who was a painter who was from Roxburgh, North Carolina, who lived close to me in Virginia, um, came to the show and he said, it looks like my paintings were trying to tell stories and failing. Mm. And it's what you want to hear after you've done this stuff. Exactly. And so that made me, this idea of telling stories because I originally wanted to tell stories and so I started looking at how comics work and that one statement really changed the course of my life so I stopped trying to figure out how to paint and started trying to figure out how to tell stories in comics and that's what pushed me on the path of doing this and eventually um, I went back to school I went to I always tell people I went back to school in my sense and got myself a library degree. And a library degree is when you have a library card and like <laughs> go to the library and you 
and you learn as much as you can about a subject. And um, and at the time, I was researching comic book artists, and I came across this comic book artist named Box Brown, who is a, a, a multi-award winning New York Times bestselling car- cartoonist. Um, and his work is great. And I'm like, this guy's really great. So I was doing some cyber stalking and looking at him, and I found his um, I found the story of Henry Box Brown, who was an enslaved African who mailed himself in a box from Virginia to Philadelphia. And I'm like, this is a really interesting story. Why is this white kid in Philadelphia named after him? So I sent him a message and I asked him, why are you a white kid in Philadelphia named after an enslaved African? <laughs> and he said, um, I, um, he goes, that's really funny. I'm square shaped. My friends call me box, but I might do a story about that guy someday. And I'm like, that's a really fantastic idea. I'm going to steal your idea. Hmm. So I spoke at the end did the story of Henry Box Brown. And that's how it got started, of like trying to figure out how to tell a story, something that was profound, that I felt was profound. Um, and I started telling it in the story of Henry Box Brown. So I, that's where I started. Okay, so now that's a great segue because... I, I want to get into uh, Tales of the Talented 10th as well. But since we're here, there's a couple of questions I have about Strange Fruit. Uh, but for all of them, I would like to ask you, outside of that initial example of Henry Box Brown, how did you come across these characters and how did you? what made you choose them? Because it sounds like, like us, you're, you're trying to... Like when I say us, I mean our organization. You're you're making sure that you give a, a platform to uh, less notarized uh, African American people who contributed to to our history. And also, the second question would be: Did you take any creative freedoms in the stories, or is it all based in the the historic trajectory of these people's lives? So um, when I first started doing, I did the first story in uh, Henry Box Brown, and I went to a comic show just like the Schomburg, only one in Bethesda, Maryland, um, called FTX. <clears throat> and I was selling these these small comics, um, these mini comics called, and they were called Strange Fruit. And somebody came up to me, and they were like, "Have you ever heard of Harry Bucky Lou?" And I said, "No, I've never heard of Harry Bucky Lou." And they were like, "Oh, Harry Bucky Lou is the uh, the basketball player and." Um, in um, in the place of the basketball league in 1902, and I'm like, that's amazing. So I went back and researched that story. So then I had Harry Bucky Lou's story, and um, Robert um, and um, Box Brown's story. So I had those two stories. So I got two volumes of Strange Fruit, and then somebody would come. So basically, every single story that came out of Strange Fruit was some story that somebody told me about. Mm. Somebody said had heard of this, and I actually have written down probably close to about 200 different individual stories um, for at least another full volume of Strange Fruit and another volume of, and um, one more volume of Tales of the Talented Tenth. So I've got a lot of, um, I've got a lot of stories out there um, to do that. So that's how I ended up doing um, the stories of Strange Fruit. And as far as embellishing, I don't, I try not to embellish. I mean, it's, it's a, I'm filling in the gaps, right? Because these are people whose stories haven't been told, so there's not a lot of people out there. Um, there's not a lot of information out there about those people, so I have to do some digging, and I have to fill in the gap. And I'll give you a really good example, um, specifically because you brought up Tales of the Talented Tenth. In Tales of the Talented Tenth, Volume 2, which is about Bessie Stringfield, um, who was the first black woman to crisscross the United States on a motorcycle, and she did it you know, nine, eight or nine times when she was in her early 20s. Um, and I originally started that story off using the stories that she told. Mm. 
So these are a lot of stories she told about being raised by this white woman in Boston. The woman gave her anything she wanted. On her 16th birthday, she gave her a motorcycle, and that was it. She was gone. She was a world traveler. Turns out, Bessie had a completely different story that was actually true about she grew up in North Carolina with a mom and dad, and she had this entire extended family up and down the East Coast um, that I didn't know about until somebody else, until the New York Times did a, did a, um, a, um, a eulogy of her um, in um, like two or three years ago. So mm-hmm. like after I'd already decided, they went and did this eulogy of her to try to find out more information and they found it out. So like, you know, I had to fill in the gaps about this, about Bessie and try to put together this, the story of her life with bits and pieces of information from people that, that I've talked to who knew her. Um, I talked to the woman who wrote the original um, obituary of her uh, in Florida. You know, I got like, I did some research and that's, that's typically how I do it. So I try not to, I try not to like make um, really big, um, fantastic um, stories about these people. I try to just keep it like this is the person's life. Right. But, uh, difficult sometimes because you get um, there's not a, lot, not a lot of information out there but um, so like I'll give you another example I'm working on Tales of the Talented Tense Volume 3 right now and that's going to be Robert Small who was an enslaved African who stole the Confederate ship the planter and sailed it through Confederate water to the Union and then it ended up being um, a senator a congressman he was a war hero, just a businessman in um, South Carolina, founded the South Carolina Republican Party. So with this story, I thought in order to tell his story that I would think of this in terms of a heist mm. because he's not only stealing the ship, he's stealing all the property as well, which are the people, right? right. So I thought about writing this as a heist story where I'm talking about his story in, in the beginning of his life, but I'm having to fill in the, fill in the, the um, blanks because there's a lot of stuff that's not written about him. For example, he was in Charleston, South Carolina working. And when he was there, um, Charleston had this whole system of tags that they would put on the enslaved Africans that said what you were. It was basically a tax that your owner out in the, out in the nowhere of South Carolina had to pay in order for you to actually work in this place and send money back. So it's kind of like a dog tag. Right. Um, like I put a little, I put a little section in there about him having to get one of these like, quote unquote slave tags to actually work in Charleston, South Carolina. So like that kind of stuff where there's nothing written about that in the, in out there, but I know that that was something that was happening during that time. So I could add that. Does that make sense? I'm trying to like, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it sounds like in correct me if I'm wrong. Well, not even correct me if I'm wrong. Do, Do you find yourself being a folklorist or ethnographer because you're actually using the tools of the folklorist and ethnographer to to research and create these stories. Do you see any connection there? I mean, I guess, yeah, I would say that there is a connection, but I, I, I more think about myself as a historian, you know, like digging through, you know, like digging. I mean, actually, I was, I was thinking about that. It made me think about a friend of mine who's a DJ, and I'm like, I'm digging through stacks, right? I'm right. like, in the store, digging through stacks, trying to find that one small, like, breakbeat that'll just, like, turn everything off. You know what I mean? Like, this, I, is, gonna, this is gonna be the best ever. I and know so, like, exactly I like what I'm, you mean. We dig through a lot of crates in my day. <laughs> like, I'm digging through crates. I'm like, that's what I'm doing. So, that's kind of how I think about myself. Like, I'm a historian, I'm digging through crates, trying to figure out what's the best breakbeat in order to get this story to tell the truth. 
Dig it. So I, I want to ask you a question about the name. But before I get to that, I, I want to address uh, something based on a lot of, you know, well, it's not even based on a lot of findings recently. This is something that's been going, information that's been going through families for a long time. It just seems to be more on, on, on I guess, in the front of, of, of um, independent media. So Richard Potter's The Great Illusion, and you write about his greatest illusion, now I'm not going to reveal that. It may be I may be giving a hint by asking this question, and one of the reasons why I'm not revealing it, because I encourage all of the listeners to buy all of these books. So if you want to know specifically of what we're speaking about, purchase the books. The link will be in the description. So in his big reveal, he alludes to being uh, African American. So my question to you again, a two-part question. Do you believe American black and native are separate? And have you found in your research any information to either prove that they're separate or prove that they're the same people renamed and reclassified? What do you mean that like Native American people are the same people as black people? Is that what you're asking me? That's exactly what I'm asking you. Um, so the thing that I, like in, in all of the research that I've done, the thing that I found, which I think is really interesting, is that, quote, the quote-unquote five races of humans don't really exist. Okay. Um, when you start dealing with, when you start looking at taxonomy and, and, like, when you start looking, when you start looking at scientifically how different species of animals are created, mm -hmm. uh, humans don't really make like humans as we see them are, we are all one species. We are all one thing. We have different cultural things, right? which are all different, right? So um, there were two geneticists in the 1970s, um, three geneticists, one was Korean and two were white. They were at Harvard. And they had, this was after mapping the human genome. And then we're like, they were gung-ho about like, let's determine what the difference between white people and Korean people are, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, they mapped out, Genome. And what they found was the two white researchers had more differences in their genome than there were differences between the white workers, the white researchers, and the Korean research. And so what that what that tells us about race in general is that the race what what we're talking about when we're talking about race is usually talking about culture. Because race as it exists is a rounding era. The difference between black people and white people and Asian people and Native American people and European the difference between all those people is is a rounding error. It's something like 0.03%. That's that's the thing that we're talking about when we talk about race. Ninety seven percent of what we are is all the same. It's just a point three difference. Um, and when I say point three, I don't mean like three percent. I mean point three. Like it would be negative one percent difference. Right. Given that, and when you look at the constructions of how race was, was created, when you go back to, um, you know, I'm doing the, um, the graphic novel adaptation of Stamp from the Beginning, A History of Racist Ideas in America, the mm. definitive history of racism in America, which won the National Book Award a couple of years ago. And Dr. Ibram Kendi um, wrote this book 
And he talks about how these racist ideas have embedded themselves in this understanding of who black people have by defining black people in the book stamped from the beginning. The, the thing that's really interesting is that it says stamped from the beginning, which implies that something has happened to black people. Mm. We didn't just start like this. We were stamped as inferior, stamped as other, stamped as different. And I would argue, and I do argue all the time that black people in America are an integral part of what it means to be American because hip hop and baggy pants are just as American as apple pie and baseball and country music. And it's like one of our, like one of the biggest, the biggest form of music right now in America, the number one form of music is hip hop music. That is black music. The, the country music, country music is a definitive, ethnographic under this a historical connection between country music and African enslaved African folk music. It's well, we can just say that country music is actually blues, which it was, it was just country blues from was, there were regional differences. So, so the titles came from the regions, but this was all a, a black music. Yeah, exactly. It all comes. And so when you start looking at that, you start seeing that this, culture that we have, this American culture, is a hodgepodge of a lot of different things. But when you look at specifically what we think of as American culture as a whole, which is mostly Southern culture, mm-hmm. mostly Southern was driven by enslaved Africans. That's what the food we were cooking, we were cooking like pit barbecue. The first pit master barbecuers were enslaved Africans. That's a competition that's got a bunch of white dudes with tattoos. Right, and, no, I, you know, I, I, yeah. Um, I mean, um, no, go ahead. Cause I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I want to save further in this discussion for, uh, a, a, another interview, but I, because you're doing a book on this, correct? Yeah, I'm doing the, um, uh, I'm, I'm doing the, um, I'm doing the graphic novel adaptation for a sense from the beginning. So I'm doing the book that talks about this history of these racist ideas and how they have permeated and I, the one, the thing that I wanted to get, because I want to start talking about this book, it's a great book. Everybody, all of you listening should listen, listen to it, but um, or read it. But one of the things that uh, Professor Kendi says is that the only thing wrong with black people is that black people think that there's something wrong with them. And the only thing exceptional about white people is that white people think they're exceptional. Mm. And he said that thing that's like, that's the thing. He's like, there is no difference between black and white. And he traces those ideas that actually put made us separate, which was all about this, the protection of a monetary concern, which was the monetary concern of slavery. And now it's about uh, the, the mass incarceration, but that's all another thing. So it's a psychological warfare for the, the control of resources, so to speak. Exactly. Wow. I mean, just when I thought we were speaking about these books and the latest book, you have another one. So I, I, I see myself sending you a schedule for a, a, a small series so we can discuss several of these topics. Um, <laughs> I, I want to ask you, the, the name Talented 10th is connected to W.E.B. Du Bois' um, vision, so to speak, for lack of a better term, for for the the group of black people he felt was one way and what he felt about the other group of black people. When you Yeah, I think I wanted to 
um, through individual stories um, that were longer form biographies of of people, black, extraordinary black people who did extraordinary things. And, um, and so I was reading the essay, The Talented Ten, by W.E.B. Du Bois, where he says that this was in contradiction to um, Booker T. Washington's idea that black and white people could be as separate as the five fingers on a hand. And a lot of people, this is familiar with this idea. And what he was saying was, black people, we will be tradesmen, we will own our own businesses, we will, feel, we will stay separate and do our own thing, and we will not seek anything higher, and we will trust that white people will do the right thing. Right. Um, it was called the compromise. And W.E.B. Du Bois was saying, no, I disagree. I think we need a black intellectual class, someone who will rise up and pull the rest of them up with them. And he called those group, he called that group the talented ten. And so when I was thinking about titles for this individual story series, I was like, the tales of the talented ten would be a good example because these are people who did those amazing things. Um, and so that's where the title of that book, that book came from. I dig it. I dig it. I'm 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 quiet because one of the original forms of expression and and passing the torch of tradition is storytelling, is narrative, is is orating. Um I believe I already know this answer, but I would like you to share and expound on it because you're a storyteller right but you're a storyteller hold over the scroll you're a storyteller of the amazing works of black folk that in some cases go unknown so talk to us about about you being a storyteller and is, was that a conscious decision to to carry on the original form of passing down our uh, information? I don't know if I would say it was a conscious decision. I feel like when you, I don't know, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like things just kind of happen, right? Um, I'm a failed painter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, that's the way I think about it. I'm a failed painter who figured out another way, who figured out a way to tell a story. And, I do think I'm a storyteller, but I think it's a little bit bigger than that, mostly because I think these stories are way more, way more than just stories. They are, um, when I, when I did Bessie Stringfield's story, um, Tony Perrier, who, um, did the comic Concrete Park. And, uh, I think Tony grew up in the Bronx too, but he's out in LA now cause he's like, a he writes for TV and he does a bunch of stuff. But, um, I let him read Bessie Stringfield. He read it and he called me and he was like, this book says so much more than just the story of Bessie Stringfield. It says that black people are just as weird and kooky and they have different interesting people in their family. Like we all got that weird aunt, you know what I mean? Like I we do. are just else, right? And he said that this is what this does. And so I started thinking that these stories, these stories about obscure black and, black and brown people are stories that epitomize what it means to be American. And they are the essential, quintessential stories of America. These don't happen, these don't happen, these don't happen in like in the islands, right? These don't happen on the West Coast of Africa. These happen, these are stories that happen in America about Americans and our quintessential American story. Mm. And so I 
think I started off with this idea like I was going to do this. It was just like, I, this is telling these stories is a way to rebuild empathy, which is what I tell you my work is all about anyway. Correct. Because if I, if I can get, if I can make somebody really understand what we want as black people for breakfast in the morning, then I've made a better place. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. I have made it better. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get everybody to understand that, you know, we all like different breakfasts and that's okay. No, I dig it. I dig it. I dig it. And that's the, you know, usually my last question would be, you know, what do you want people to receive from your works? But you just answered that very eloquently. I would like to ask you this. Did you have to get some sort of licensing or anything to tell these stories? No, because they're historical people. So I'm just telling this. I mean, the people are still alive. Um, they can. So you can tell, like, you can tell a story of a public person. Um, and you don't have to get a release, but you have to be careful about what you write because people can sue you. Right. Um, lots of the people I'm writing about are histor- historical. Um, are historical and you can't and so those people are gone you can't somebody who's dead can't can't sue you um, for uh, they can't sue you and you can't can't sue you either um, unless they've gotten some work that's like if they've written a story about themselves and like you're plagiarizing it but then there's a whole lot of stuff on that so I don't necessarily have to I don't have to get I don't have to get permission or license I try not to deal with people whose lives and works are um, are in the public domain uh, that are locked up like that because it just makes things way more complicated. And I just want to tell the story. I like I just thought like these stories should be told, and I want to tell those stories. Okay, well, I mean, they're, they're great stories, and I, I advise everybody to get them in their libraries. I mean, you, you, Brother Joe writes and draws these things, right? And you know, matter of fact you can let them know where they can follow your journey and where they can uh, find you and find the books. So you can find the books at any, any independent bookseller. Um, you know, they're all online. You can go to only press for fight. Um, and you can get, um, fast enough. My only picture book on, at um, only press and lion forge. Fulcrum books have all of my strange fruit books. And um, be on the lookout for the graphic adaptation of Stamped, which will be coming from 10 Speed Press um, in 2023. So um, you can and you can follow me at um, all social media, Joel Christian Gill on all social media and on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and TikTok. <laughs> I'm being like the youngins and got, got myself a TikTok. Oh, um, <laughs> we got to stay current. I stay current. Um, so yeah, you can follow me at all these different places. Um, and, um, that's, that's pretty much where you can get me at. Well, I'll tell you, brother Joel, this was an honor and a treat to, to get some of your story and understand the mechanics behind how they're, the, the stories are presented. Uh, again, we here in the Pearly household enjoy Strange Fruit, and we will be um, getting the entire collection as well as fights. And oh, one last thing Fast Enough. Okay. Talk to us about Fast Enough because this looks like a little young lady on a bicycle. So Fast Enough is the story of Bessie Stringfield, but it's a it's an imagined story of Bessie Stringfield of when she was a little girl. And it's a story about her um, getting into a race with these boys in her neighborhood 
and them telling her she's not fast enough. So I always, this is a story about anybody who's ever been told that they weren't enough. Mm. And young black girls, black and brown girls have had this more than most people. And so, but this is for anybody who's ever been told they weren't enough because the, the, the story, the moral of the story is that you are enough, you are fast enough. And Betsy's life is an example of that. She was, she was like I said, she was the first black woman to crisscross the United States. So it's a, it's an imagined story of Betsy Stringfellow as a little girl. I dig it, man. I dig it. And I, I really appreciate the fact that there, there's psychological um, and, and encouraging uh, a component to these stories of history, right? Because uh, a lot of the conversations that you hear around the, the, the black community, whatever their, their culture or claim to be, is, is being psychologically damaged based on uh, personal experiences, family experiences, community experiences, and systematic uh, uh, American experiences. So I, I really appreciate that that's addressed without it being spoon fed or but but making sure it's clear hey this is okay you experience this but you can get to the other side of this and I, we commend you for that let's give you a, a round of applause Yes, and, and we will be doing this again. And before we go, is there any last thing you would like to let the, the good people know? Um, stay at home. <laughs> wash your hands. Yeah. Definitely. Don't touch your face. Um, if, you know, if I, I, you know, 45 says something, I don't know. I'm like, feel like you should just do the opposite of what that man said. So. Oh, you trying to get me off the air. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, just stay safe and, you know, try to hunker down and, you know, think about, you know, people who don't have and think about people who can't just, you know, hide in their studio like I can. And, you know, if you have, um, you know, if you like, don't go to, don't go to the grocery store this week, this week, if you can, to give people who are on food stamps, who get EBT cards an opportunity to go out and get their stuff because, those people have been not had anything for a while. So like, think about those kind of people. And I don't know, man, just think about, think about how you can help other people without, you know, and stay inside. I dig it. I dig it. On that note, you know what it is. Jack Dapper Blues, this is the African-American folklore where you learn them blues, them blues people, the story of, and the trajectory heading forward. Thank you, good folk.